0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: G'day and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. The federal government remains steadfastly committed to winding up the live sheep trade in WA. There was $5 million pledged to that effort in the recent budget. The plan is to replace that trade with processed chilled meat exports to the Middle East, but one importer of live sheep says it'll just see customers switch to live exports from another country.
2: The people, they know the product which is available in the market. They start increasing the quantity which they are importing from other countries, from Romania, they bought the 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 livestock from Romania and the children from Romania
1: that interview is coming up but first Serena Locke is here to run through this week's biggest rural news good morning serena
3: good morning clint jasper
1: let's start with livestock there's been a big slide in cattle prices and it's continuing
3: Yes, I want people to close your eyes and visualise the two humps of a Bactrian camel. That's the graph (laughs) of the cattle price over the 12 months. So yes, there was that rise and there was that dip. We're now sliding off the back of that camel, down, down, down. (laughs) The price for young cattle shot the lights out 12 months ago. It hit a record high. And then Indonesia detected foot and mouth disease on our doorstep, I suppose. And there was a bit of panic. The price dropped by 25% thereabouts. It corrected and bounced back up in September, but it's been downhill ever since. So there is an oversupply of cattle on the market. You know, people have rebuilt their herds after the drought. And most cattle producers did calculate there would have to be a drop in price as we head into a dry winter and with a long-range forecast of an El Nino, likely to be a dry spring. Now, independent livestock analyst Tim McCrae says cattle producers are more inclined to sell right now in anticipation.
4: I think producers are much more um, you know, aware and active, and I think the numbers we've seen coming through, I think I saw somewhere that maybe MLA was saying that, you know, yardings so far this year and their reported yards are up over 100% on mm. this year. Wow. Um, you know, so I think we're seeing those cattle come, I think. You know, I think in a lot of instances, producers with molts, it's a bit drier are also conscious to, um, to get cattle out while they can. I mean, I think this is the crunch right now.
1: Bring on the cheaper beef.
3: Yes, it will eventually flow through, you'd have to think.
1: (laughs) Hopefully. Well, we've spent much of the past year or two talking about higher beef and lamb prices and the tune's changing across the board.
3: Yeah, so those higher meat prices encouraged lots of graziers, particularly in Queensland, to buy into goat production. But like cattle, the goat price peaked 12 months ago and they've been in what's described as freefall ever since, with the most recent data showing goat prices to be a third of what they were last June. And it's an industry that in 2021 was worth over $242 million. A large sheep and goat producer in Charleville in Queensland is not able to process enough goats with the shortage of staff. And black or grazier Angus MacDonald is a goat producer who's been forced to hold on to excess stock while he waits for what's called kill space.
5: The goat market is very difficult at the moment. Um, it's very trying times, I must say. And I've only been in the industry, you know, seven years or so. But um, it's certainly very difficult to to do much at the moment. Your hands are tied by the capabilities of what the
6: abattoirs are doing.
1: Some of Western Australia's Indigenous communities are going without power, where nearby mines are shipping energy all around the world. And now there's an effort to address that.
3: Yes, so billions of dollars are poured into mining projects across Australia each year. And at the same time, nearby communities struggle to keep the lights on, especially during floods. Now, it's hoped the clean energy transition might see that change. For example, in the Western Desert, which is nine hours drive southeast of the Pilbara, man. Christopher Croker is part of the First Nations Clean Energy Network and he says there's this really strange divide between Indigenous communities and wealthy mining operations that operate on their land.
7: You can actually have, you know, a 100 megawatt or $200 million investment going on down the road supplying all of this power that a big industry base actually needs but then just literally down the road or sometimes across the fence um, we actually have remote houses who are still just getting disconnected either because they can't afford the electricity that's being provided or if the systems are so unreliable that it actually just breaks down and so it's kind of like this divide you know we're talking about mega scale projects exporting green hydrogen to to the world and but then actually we still have all these issues in our backyard.
3: So Mr Croker wants to see traditional owners brought in as equal partners to develop renewable energy. And the federal government last year put in $5 million to develop a renewable energy strategy for remote communities. So this energy will do things like help elders come back onto country to teach the young ones, because there will be electricity for refrigeration and dialysis machines helping them live there. So JARO woman Ruby Hurd, is also an electrical engineer and member of the First Nations Clean Energy Network, wants to see it kick-started.
8: No better time than the present, I guess, is the best answer we can give there. Um, yes, we have seen a lot of energy projects and developers already approach our communities um, and we're, just, we're getting to it as quickly as possible. The, the transition is going to come at great speed. Uh, and so we're, we're just trying to get in there now and make sure that as many communities as possible are as prepared as possible.
3: I recommend people hop onto this story by Michelle Stanley. We'll put a link to it on our Country Breakfast page.
1: Absolutely. Looking overseas now, the diplomatic deal that allows grain to be exported from the Black Sea during the Ukraine-Russia war has been extended yet again.
3: Yes, yeah, so this deal was announced in July last year and it has been extended a number of times, each time with growing protest from Russia. And while it's been a great help for Ukrainian farmers and to their buyers, of course, across the Middle East and North Africa, Russia is getting more frustrated because the deal limits its export of fertiliser and energy. Now, Russia held out against the negotiations, but on Thursday morning, the UN was pleased to announce another 60 days.
1: Yeah, so Russia obviously wants some of those tight sanctions. It's under loosened a little bit, but the region overall, especially Ukraine, is tipped to produce less grain overall this year as the conflict drags on.
3: Yeah, that's right. So when the conflict started, many farmers had already bought their fertiliser and crop protection chemicals and produced a fairly decent crop. They also had a lot of carryover stock from the previous season, but this time around everything is more expensive. That means Ukrainian farmers planted less food crops and switched to lower input plantings, things like sunflower. And Andrew Sizov is a Black Sea Grains analyst and he told the Mark to Market podcast the production volumes have dropped so much that Ukraine can export overland instead of having to rely so heavily on ocean freight.
1: Stocks are lower, uh, new crop expected to be lower. So Ukraine actually
9: can ship all its wheat, corn, barley and other crops, almost all without the grain corn. So it's not really that important.
1: Back at home, chemical explosives and fertiliser manufacturer Incitec Pivot Limited has posted a drop in profits over the first half of the year.
3: Yeah. So following a record-breaking set of financial numbers posted in November last year, this Incitec Pivot half-year result presentation showed how the company was adjusting to a more challenging set of economic and business circumstances. It's a supplier to the agriculture and mining sectors. And the latter half of 2022 saw commodity prices come off the highs they'd hit in the wake of the Ukraine war. And while that conflict also spiked fertilizer prices, they too came crashing down. Managing Director and CEO, Gene Johns says the price of DAP fertilizer, as it's called, dropped a whopping $345 a tonne. So when the rains came and the farmers didn't plant, they got caught holding a lot of stock.
10: Parts of the Australian market was flooded out and the farmers just couldn't plant. So they fundamentally missed a whole season. So we basically bought inventory for what was expected to be a good season and that didn't come. And at the same time, the pricing dropped um, and it dropped by unprecedented amount. It used to be 10 20 $30 a ton would be seen as a big drop.
1: Here we go again with more Queensland horticulture woes. <laughs> Strawberry prices have gone up again and they're set to rise.
3: Yes, it really is hard to track. Uh, I think just go to the markets and buy what's in season. So the Victorian season is coming to an end and it now switches to Queensland, which is where most of Australia's strawberries are produced. But the state was delayed in planting strawberries by unfavourable weather. So Queensland strawberry grower Laura Wells on a family farm that runs Taste and See Strawberries says peak production is up to two months away, which means prices will remain higher for consumers for longer.
8: We've had another hard start this year to the season. Uh, a lot of plant delays and conditions just haven't been great for the runner producers, so we've ended up having to take the brunt of that again. But we have got plants in the ground. We are ready to move forward and we're just starting to slowly pick.
1: Serena, you know that saying we got told as journalists that, you know, we're not supposed to write stories that are like everyone woke up and was fine today. I think <laughs> the Queensland seasons are so wild that it almost warrant a news story that would just say Queensland strawberry production is normal this year.
9: Is
3: normal. Pineapples are normal. Yeah. Avocados are normal. It, uh, macadamias, mm. yes. You could just run through the list of fruit.
1: Now, schools don't have to teach agriculture, which is a shame because this school has demonstrated that it could be a pretty good course.
3: Yeah, it could. Now, take a listen to this little auction. That's Toby Scholl. Now, he's a nine-year-old auctioneer, and he's just sold 86 head of cattle. Well, toy cattle, in fact. And the top price was, wait for it, $190,000. <laughs> so these kids are in a small school west of Bundaberg, Queensland, and they've been learning about auctioneering. At Abercon State School, Toby auctioneered, well, he auctioned off the toys to his year four maths class. It
10: was really good because I want sometimes, I like to auctioneer my toy cattle. How often do you like to do that? Maybe once
8: every two months.
1: That is so (laughs) They're learning big
8: numbers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I can even talk as fast as an auctioneer, even though I'm paid to stand behind a microphone.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, he's obviously getting some practice. There's some family traits
0: there, isn't there?
1: Hey, Serena, thank you so much for that wrap of Rural News this week.
0: Nice to talk, Clint. Let's be honest. We all keep secrets. Secrets to protect others or ourselves.
5: You put your recording on, that's fine.
0: Secrets that can cost lives or save them. I don't mind if you name me.
2: Really? Yeah. That's incredibly brave.
0: If you're a journalist and someone tells you a secret, it's called a background briefing. And that's what we're giving you. Background Briefing. Award-winning investigative journalism for your ears. Sunday, 8am on ABC RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app.
1: This week, we're visiting a nut farm where the new owners are doing more than just harvesting the plentiful crop of chestnuts and walnuts. They plan to use it as a wellness facility where people can come for some healing. We'll hear about the restoration of an historic boathouse. The small timber shed serves as a link to the past when boats were more reliable than cars, but it was in danger of being lost to history before its new owners took on the mission of rescuing it. And learning the skills needed for a new career, wrangling crocodiles. We'll meet some of the participants taking part in a crocodile handling course.
8: From the start, we learnt just the basics, the husbandry. We've gone on to learning the knots, which is very important as well. Capturing, restraining, a bit of biology, uh, what they eat. There's just been so much that I've learnt in such a short period of time, which has been amazing.
1: We'll hear about that course that's teaching everything from crocodile conservation and tour guiding to how to set up a croc hatchery and incubator. That is coming up. First today, we're headed to Tennant Creek, a small town on the Stewart Highway between Alice Springs and Darwin, where an annual horse racing event is bringing new and old members of the community together for a fun day out. Alice Springs-based reporter Evan Wallace travelled to the Northern Territory's Barclay region for the event.
11: Against the backdrop of the Honeymoon Rangers, colours sparkle at the Tennant Turf Club. It's Two Cup Race Day, one of the region's most important events. For the club's president, Mike Nash, it's a long countdown to one of his favourite days.
12: It's very good for the, the townspeople, the station people and all that sort of business. It's the only day that really the, the girls can get frocked up and put the proper clobber on and style out really. And the blokes, for that matter. And what is it that you love the most about race day? (laughs) Oh, just the atmosphere, mate. It's a very good place. Yeah, it's a good good feeling.
11: We haven't even had the first race yet, but it is bubbling along. People are coming through the doors thick and fast. No, it's looking good. It's looking good. And here comes
12: buses with people in them, so that's always a very good thing.
11: The two-cup races is also eagerly anticipated by Lions Club president Kate Foran, who enjoys seeing the town come to life and lending a hand with her team of volunteers.
13: Oh, it's always a fabulous day. The whole town comes out, everybody gets dressed up. All our Lions members have come to do the catering. We've been here since 9 o'clock this morning. We were here kitting up last night, so getting everything ready. It's a big annual event.
11: you you've been busy the last few days and looks like a very good menu I saw some kebabs floating around in there
13: yeah yeah there's a choice of things there and and trying to cater to vegetarians and even a vegan option in the menu and we've got gluten-free so trying to keep everybody happy Mm
11: -hmm. for the Lions Club what does it mean to be involved
13: Oh, well, it's a, it's a great way for us to engage with the community. I'm standing here in my lion shirt. It really flies the flag for what we do in terms of community service and a great way for the local community to see us in action.
11: How important is 2CUP for Tennant Creek and the Barclay?
13: Oh, a fascinating um, opportunity to bring people from the stations into town, Uh, people come from elsewhere in the Territory, it's, to to the locals it's a great opportunity to dress up and fling some money across the, well across the bar as well as across to the bookies, but it's a great social occasion and good for the economy here to bring people in, fill up all the motels and caravan parks.
11: One of those individuals who is coming from out of town is Kelly McLaughlin. She's based at Tennant Creek Station.
8: Yeah, it's been really good, Um, good to see a good turnout from the uh, local people and a lot of the stations who have travelled far to come in as well. We obviously don't get to socialise a great deal, so it's a a social event to bring us all together um, and, as I said, bring the other stations as well as the local together. What is it
11: that you personally love the most about Two Cup Day?
8: Uh, personally, I love the fashion. <laughs> so, as you can tell, dressed uh, a little bit. So, yeah, that's my favourite part.
11: It's a great costume that you have here. Describe it for me.
8: Uh, yeah, so I've got a white dress on. It, it was just a cheap buy from in town. And then I've got these, these black feathers as a necklace. And my fascinator is um, millinery from Mel um, across in Mount Isa there. Uh, yeah, that's my outfit. <laughs>
11: Looking really good. Enjoy the rest of the day.
8: Thanks very much. Cheers.
11: Dressed in a dazzling array of colour is Sam Lennarongoito. He's taken the opportunity to show off his pride in his Kenyan heritage. Sam moved to Tennant Creek in February with his wife and three children. And on race day, he's loving life in his new home.
9: I come from Samburu tribe. And this is a kind of dress up for the warriors, the young men, when they are ready to go for dances or looking after the community. And yeah, that's what I'm wearing today. I
11: love it, Sam. There's so much colour and so much joy that's attached to it. What does it mean for you today to be able to come out to the two-cup
9: race day and to be able to don traditional clothing that has an importance to you? It is very important. I'm just being a part of the community and you see people happy and smiling. And that's the main joy. I brought my family here and we are sharing just a drink, you know, and see other people having fun and horses running you know it's joy just the beauty and happiness in people's faces everyone
11: Everyone seems to be in a really wonderful mood too looking forward to what the day throws ahead some people they take the horses very seriously for other folk it's about the fashion and for you it's that all round community feel from the sound of
9: it oh just wonderful it's a wonderful just seeing everyone in their beautiful colors and smiles you know it's it's joy. Just and this is the first time that you've been to two cup race day? It is my first time to be in the horse races and I can't wait to see. It's fun. <laughs> is this the first time ever that you've been to a horse race? Yes, this is my first time ever. I haven't been on a horse race before, anyway. on a horse. Yeah. But live alone just watching it. So, yeah, it's really good because I'm looking forward to it because I've never been to one.
14: <laughs>
9: <laughs> yes. How long have you called Tennant Creek home? We've been here for a few months now yeah. and it's a wonderful place. I enjoy being part of the community in Tennant Creek. It's so much to see and so much to learn and explore. Yes, so Thank we're having fun. And people have been pretty welcoming too? Absolutely. Everywhere, the kids at school, they're having fun with other friends and the community around us. It's wonderful community was it
11: work was it family that brought you to tc yeah
9: we came because of work my wife got a job here so she working as a doctor and that's why what brought us here and just a bit of experience in different cultures we come coming down from melbourne so seeing different different place of the country and different cultures that's the main thing yes
11: sound really nice to meet you have a great race day
9: thank you so much nice to meet you too
0: The sun is beating down in central Queensland as Gold Coast lifesaver Sam Stredwick catches her first croc of the day. She's leaning down into a small creek in a pen at the Karana Crocodile Farm. She caught the 1.5-metre croc with a rope on a long pole and is now pulling it up to move it to another enclosure. After 10 years of working as a lifeguard, Ms Stredwick is ready for an adrenaline-fuelled
8: career change to work with the reptiles in zoos. I feel they're misjudged and and there's not enough knowledge, uh, I feel, about these these animals. They're, They're amazing, they're unique, they're beautiful. Yeah, I just want to get in there and learn as much as I can.
0: Hello, I'm Megan Hughes. And I'm watching on as Sam Stredwick and three other participants in this crocodile handling training course go through their paces. They're learning practical skills for working with crocodiles, under the guidance of world-renowned
7: croc expert John Lever. You pull a crocodile up, he's going to be a little bit stressed and he'll want to bite you. This pole keeps him away from you. There hasn't been any crocodile training facility in Australia. Uh, originally when when the industry started back in the dim dark ages but I'd been training people in Papua New Guinea for several years I wrote a training manual over there and we trained people developed crocodile management teams to go out to villages and teach them how to farm crocodiles instead of just killing them and selling the skins so a very different aspect to the whole proposal so when I came to Australia I found there was no facility for training and so I just continued on with that and we developed one. We've got a crocodile training manual that's fairly thorough uh, and we put people through the steps of handling crocodiles we call it a crocodile handling training course but in actual fact it's a bit of everything it's not just handling it's also conservation it's also uh, uh, tour guiding it's also how to set up a a hatchery and an incubator and things like that as well all things that are needed in the industry
0: cairns-based tattoo artist tommy hayes is another participant he's putting down his tattoo gun to jump into the croc cage Kickstarting his career in conservation after a croc saved his life.
6: I was going through pretty, some pretty terrible stuff a few years ago and uh, drinking a lot and sort of self-destructive path and what have you and I was going to a certain spot in the river where there were uh, there was a big bull crocodile and all these, these harem of, of girls and uh, I was up there every day just self-destructive stuff and then I started to notice the crocodiles sort of notice me and I, I would notice if one crocodile wasn't there another one was and things like that and, big bull sort of he was the elusive one but because i was always out there so how can i turn a negative into a positive so and yeah essentially going out and seeing that big bull crop all the time sort of saved my life i didn't end up drinking myself to death when he was removed that sort of really kicked me in the butt because that was unfair it was ridiculous
0: Mr Lever had the participants start in the hatchery with the babies before working their way up to full-sized breeding crocodiles.
7: They've been handling some larger crocodiles which you don't pick them up in your hands, you've got to do with ropes and poles. So that's the next stage. And beyond that, they will go to capturing uh, breeding-sized crocodiles and that means team efforts, not just one person, but team efforts.
0: For Ms Stredwick, this course is the cherry
8: on top of her study and work experience. That's why I'm here doing this course, to get the hands-on experience, the knowledge. John is so well known throughout the industry uh, with his knowledge and he just loves to share it with everyone, so this is definitely the place to be.
0: What sort of things have you done in the
8: course so far? So much stuff from from the start. We learnt just the basics, the husbandry. We've gone on to learning the knots, which is very important as well. Capturing, restraining, a bit of biology, uh, what they eat. There's just been so much that I've learnt in in such a short period of time, which has been amazing.
6: Mr
0: Hayes says
6: it's been eye opening. I'd only ever heard really good things about John and the course down here in the farm here. Uh, Some fellows I work with trapping and what have you. I mentioned it to them, and they said. Go. If if you can sit there and talk with John, then whatever whatever information you can get, you're not gonna get any better information from anyone else. It's a no-brainer for me. <laughs>
0: and how's it gone this week so brilliant. far?
6: Brilliant. I'm covered in crocodile stuff. And, nah but it's it's really good. Reinforces a lot of stuff that I sort of taught myself or just observed. Mountains of information, I had no idea. So yeah, brilliant.
0: Mr Lever decided not to get this course officially recognised, so participants receive a certificate of competency rather than accreditation. A spokesperson for the Zoo and Aquarium Association Australasia told the ABC in a statement, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to entering the industry. It said veterinary care roles would require a relevant degree or certificate, but for other care roles, different institutions require different qualifications. And the best place to start is to contact the organisation you want to work at, to volunteer or to discuss qualification requirements.
1: <laughs> Megan Hughes with that story about a crocodile training course in central Queensland. You can see more on that, including videos of the participants putting their skills into action. You'll find it on the RN homepage, abc.net.au. Just look for Country Breakfast. I'm Clint Jasper with you on our end this morning, and still to come, how the new owners of a nut orchard plan to combine a working farm with a wellness retreat. And we'll hear about the hard work that went into preventing an historic boathouse falling down and being lost forever. Reporter Jennifer Nichols visited the wheelhouse on the Marichi River on Queensland's Sunshine Coast to learn how it was saved.
15: Go in, have a tour. <laughs> wow, isn't that gorgeous, so that's still the original porthole. It was you know, really important that that structure also be kept.
16: Christina Kuchan and Andrew Tolson are the proud custodians of the now beautifully restored
15: wheelhouse. There was some damage to the timbers which are replaced with the same type of timber for the flooring. So you can see these red ones that have been changed over. A magnet for avid photographers, it's one of just
16: five privately owned fishing sheds or boathouses that still stand in the Maruchi River.
15: As the region grows, obviously things develop, but it's just really important that we still have something like this to remind us of the history of these little sheds and it's important to recognise them.
16: Constructed between 1940 and 1970 they're remnants from the days when the river was more reliable than the
15: Sunshine Coast's primitive roads. From my research they weren't just used for fishing or recreational it was multi-purpose it was when the logging was occurring and the shipments were coming down the river and people lived obviously what's now Bradman Avenue and that's how the the deliveries came so it's a pretty big deal and we just love it but like so many love affairs with historic buildings it's fair to say that this relationship
16: has been a rocky ride in 2018 when the couple bought a house on busy bradman avenue they had no idea what they were getting themselves into
4: there was a set of keys that came with the house <laughs> and they said we think this opens the boat shed, but there's no evidence that you own it. So that was what we were told when we bought the place, yeah. They got forgotten about.
16: To prove they owned it, Christina Kuchan turned detective, tracking documents back through the decades and several name changes of state government departments to successfully find their title and the original drawings for the wheelhouse. The task ahead was still daunting.
4: There was damage before we bought it, yeah.
16: Time, tide and flooding had taken a toll. The much-loved wheelhouse was in bad shape and history-loving locals were feeling distressed about it.
4: We saw and heard the sense of loss. People were saying, well, oh, there's another boat shed's about to disappear. They've watched the deterioration in numbers on the river over the years, so it's real. You know, these are real emotions. People are connected. Clearly we're connected.
16: At the same time, Sunshine Coast Council was trying to track down the owners of all five sheds, as Councillor Jason O'Pray explains.
7: We, as council, were receiving an enormous amount of complaint, if you like, that they were falling down and they were in poor condition and deteriorating, and it was such an historic thing for our region that nobody wanted to see it fall away. And council did a lot of research early days trying to work out who actually owned the things, because it wasn't us, it wasn't council, they were all privately owned, and they were actually connected to the backyards when Bradman Avenue didn't even exist. Um, The history there was so checkered and so disorientated. Council's
16: decision to heritage list the fishing sheds significantly added to the cost of repairs. Christina Kuchan and Andrew Tolson stepped forward to work with its heritage team to navigate the red tape associated with restoration.
4: We had to maintain the theme of the era and source locally grown materials or if we could salvage from other projects. It actually took quite a while to source the right materials to even start the job.
16: Things got far worse before they got better. By April 2019, flooding had warped and wrecked the wheelhouse's ramp. Fencing had to be erected to stop thieves helping themselves to its wonderfully weathered hardwood. Vandals broke in and just as progress was being made behind the scenes, the pandemic hit and the couple's work lives drastically changed.
4: During COVID, we... this project on the back burner.
16: At just the right time, Barry Cheels, the President of the Budram Men's Shed, reached out with an incredibly generous offer.
12: I thought it would be a a nice idea if we uh, could try and fix one or more of them up. We became involved when the owners had done all the hard legwork. Don Kitson was uh, one of our members and he's come from the UK and done uh, an apprenticeship in uh, boat building and worked with wood and boats and marine all his life and had a huge amount of expertise. He uh, was able to assess what was possible and what wasn't possible and worked with the owners and the council. Replaced the uh, stumps and they do it by pumping water at pressure into the sand underwater and then sticking the post in the area that the sand has been blown away. When you stop blowing the sand away, it all settles back there and locks the post in. So we replaced the concrete stumps with turpentine timber, which is traditionally used in that sort of application in the water. It doesn't rot. Put in bearers and then built the base from that. We replaced the stumps for the walkway out in a similar fashion um, replaced all of the timbers all the way out to the beginning of the shed. We were then able to repair the planks in the shed, which were weather from typical from back in the 40s and 50s and earlier.
16: I've had some people say to me, well, the Putrim men's Shed, why would they do this when it's a privately owned asset but you feel differently.
12: Yes, the fact that the shed is privately owned wasn't an issue for us. The important aspect was that the project happen and that the boat shed get restored for the benefit of all of the community. If it was done commercially, you just wouldn't be able to afford to do it. And that's what is greatly disappointing to us, that maybe the other sheds are going to struggle to be fixed up because the cost to fix them is going to be far more than is commercially liable. So all of a sudden the community lose those icons.
16: Thanks to Barry Chills, Don Kitson, his talented team and its devoted owners the wheelhouse stands proud for the next generation
12: to be
4: honest if the community hadn't have gotten together the way that it did at the time and stayed together it wouldn't have happened
16: so very grateful to all of those volunteers who must have been very passionate about it as well
4: 100 percent
14: It's harvest season at the Sassafras Nut Farm, located about 40 minutes west of Nowra. The team are expecting to harvest about 10 tonnes of nuts, but this isn't any ordinary nut farm. It's also giving people with mental health and addiction issues a chance to heal. Shane Clark has PTSD and had been self-medicating for several years until he started working on the property.
12: Since coming out here to the farm, that has actually helped with the chaos that does go on in my head. And yeah, as I said, it's just that peace and quiet that I don't get in town, that I come out here, no matter how my week has been, you know, or weekend, I get here and it just washes off. It's just calming and healing.
14: Hello, I'm Justin Huntsdale, and I'm visiting this nut farm on the New South Wales South Coast. About a year ago, this farm was purchased by local church group, Salt Ministries. While they plan to continue running it as a working farm, they have a bigger vision to also use it as a wellness facility. The farm has around 1,100 nut trees and specialises in chestnuts, but weather events over the last few years have taken their toll. During Salt Ministries' first year running the farm, heavy rain prevented any sort of harvest and caused disease in some of the trees.
6: We get a, a phytophthora disease in the, in the soil here. Well, you get it everywhere, but we do have it here. So we have lost a few trees through that. Yeah, so that's, that's probably our biggest hassle. And now that our nuts are falling, the birds tend to, to like them as well. So we're harvesting quite early in the morning and late at night to try and keep on top of that.
14: Before that, the black summer fires of 2019-20 tore through the Sassafras area and almost wiped out the entire farm. It was before the church bought the property, but SALT CEO Peter Dover says it didn't put them off proceeding with their plans. He says while there has been a lot of work to repair the damage to Sassafras nuts, He's forever grateful that the chestnuts saved the property.
17: Walnuts were the most affected. So we lost half of our walnut plantation, but we've cut them back and they're, they're growing really well now. So so it, we're, were chestnuts, chestnuts, no problem. It's the great thing about chestnuts, they carry so much water. So the flames came to the chestnuts and stopped. So it was really, it saved the whole farm, which was great.
14: The nuts being picked here are processed on site and sold at the Sydney markets or at the farm gate. They fetch a decent price too, anywhere between $3 and $12 a kilo. But Mr Dover is realistic about what can be achieved this year.
17: We're not going to break even this year, it's going to cost us money and and that's in our budget, we understand that, but we want to make sure that we not only sell nuts but we look, look at how do we process these nuts, how do we get more value add out. So it's not just about selling 10 tonne of nuts, it's about getting us together and working out how do we upsell these, so how do we retail them, how do we, how do we process them so that they can gain more value.
14: But purchasing the farm has always been about more than making a profit. The charity is hoping to add a wellness component to the farm. It would run in addition to their homeless shelter, housing program and food bank. Caseworker Sally Campbell is working to introduce animals to the farm program and she's doing an equine therapy course which she hopes to put to good use here.
0: Horses really need us to be our genuine selves and what I'm learning is the way horses, um, the way we show up with the horse, they're always communicating with us and I think what I'm learning is they can really help people get in touch with what's going on inside.
14: At the moment Working on the farm is offered as a day program once a week, but Mr Dover and his team are hoping to build on that. SALT has plans to build a residential retreat which would allow people struggling with their mental health to take the time they need to properly heal.
17: It's not just about feeding people, it's not just about housing people, it's about it's, it's producing a circle where there's a full circle where people are coming in, being housed, fed and then healed so they can then start producing for themselves, so they can start being sustainable themselves.
1: That was Peter Dover, the CEO of Salt Ministries, ending that report from Justin Huntsdale on the south coast of New South Wales. You'll find more on that story and all of the stories you've heard on today's program by checking out the Country Breakfast program page on the ABC website. Head to abc.net.au slash rn and look for Country Breakfast under Programs.
7: It was the biggest environmental rally in the country's history.
15: Four decades ago, the Franklin River blockade captivated and polarised the nation. Save the Franklin! I'm Joe Lauder. Join me to relive all the plot twists and find out why it still matters
0: so much today. If enough people stand up, we can win. Dig. Saving the Franklin. Sundays at 9.30am on ABC RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app.
1: The new report shows the price of Australian farms continued to skyrocket throughout 2022. Rural Bank's annual farmland values report reveals the median price jumped 20% to just over $8,500 a hectare last year, with all states and territories recording more than 15% growth. I spoke with Rural Bank's Andrew Smith, who says Tasmania was the highlight from last year.
5: Tasmania was really was a standout in 2022. It had a median price per hectare rise of nearly 55%. And while Tasmania is is a smaller market with less transactions, it does give some evidence of uh, the high value of the land, particularly in the northwest of the state where we saw really strong rises. And I guess that speaks to the quality of the country, but also reliability in terms of rainfall and irrigation supply also.
1: That price growth in Tassie was pretty phenomenal, but this is the first year that all states and territories recorded more than 15% growth, I think in about 30 years. So to put that into perspective, how does this performance recorded in the report for 2022 compare to something like the ASX 200 or the Cap City residential market?
5: Yeah, interesting. The the resi market nationally came back by about 5.3% in 2022, whereas for farmland, we went forward by 20%. And the ASX was back a similar amount by about 5%. So as an asset class, uh, farmland's performed really well and has done for some time. If you look at the compound annual growth rate over the last 20 years, it's running at 8.5%. And in the last nine years in particular, uh, running at 11.5%.
1: In recent years, when you talk to agents and uh, analysts like Rural Bank, when you ask what's driving this buying frenzy for farmland, especially I'm thinking in in 2021 in markets like Victoria. The answer was dirt cheap debt and sky-high commodity prices. Are they the forces that are driving that 20% rise nationally in this year's report?
5: Look, I think we we had a a few drivers. Certainly low interest rates through that period continue to stimulate transactional activity as well as what were some very good production years. Seasonally, it's been a pretty good run and, and you don't often get that that really good formula of high production and high prices. So that that continued through 2022. And I think what we have seen is farmland come up to a, a new level. Uh, over the long term, it's been increasing quite strongly and, and particularly in some of those states like uh, South Australia, WA, Victoria really did have strong years again this last 12 months.
1: Can you speak a little bit more about what's going on behind what seems like a pretty significant decline over last year in the number of transactions taking place? Is that because there are less buyers in the market or less properties coming onto the market?
5: Really a a mix of supply and demand of rural properties. So we certainly had that uh, drop transactional volume was down by 34% on the year before, which was really probably a a high, high period in in terms of land sale transaction. And what we saw was less supply, really. It's tightly held a lot of the farmland around Australia. And with conditions being so good, a lot of farmers decide to continue to farm rather than exit the industry. So we did see a reduction in the number of properties offered for sale, but also towards the back end of the year, some, some pass in. Uh, activity at auctions as well. So it was just starting to soften towards the back end of last year.
1: And is that partly the reason why I think one thing I'm noticing in this report is it seems like all states, all regions, which would necessarily mean like all types of commodities really, are posting these uh, growth figures in the price of farmland value. So was it that uniquely strong year that has really driven the prices um, in this report?
5: Look, I I think it probably does speak to what was a boom year if we look at our agricultural output, our exports, uh, any of those metrics would say it was just one of those fantastic years in agriculture. So that certainly drove it, I, I think as well. Just just the uh, structural adjustment we have seen in recent years where neighbours buying neighbours has been taking place and often you'll see a bit of a premium for country that's next door and I think that's played out to a degree in the numbers as well.
1: That does lead on to my next question, Andrew Smith. Can you shed light on who is buying these properties? Are we seeing a bit more activity from foreign investors in the market or is it still the case that those family corporate type operations are looking to expand onto the neighbour's block?
5: Look, I think the continuing story of our family farming businesses uh, being the majority of the the drivers here, we, we've had a number of large transactions as well where we've seen family groups building their aggregations, some significant uh, cattle stations in particular changing hands, but also some of the uh, foreign investment where we've seen the owners decide to actually sell into the market and monetize their gains. We we saw a number of uh, aggregations that were put to market that were probably more institutional investor type owners and uh, that's played out as well. But predominantly the the demand side of the equation has come from our, our family corporate type customer. And looking
1: forward, interest rates continue to rise. We could be heading into an El Nino this season, and there's been some softening for our main commodities that we export. How would you expect all of this to factor into farmland values over the coming year?
5: (laughs) Yeah, look, we we do see an inflection point. I think when you have that run up of 20 plus percent growth for a number of years, you tend to find a new level. And we're expecting with that, just easing in the situation of uh, farmer profitability, that there'll be some caution coming into the market, particularly with higher interest rates as well. So, Our expectation is we'll still see a a growth year this year, which would make it 10 years in a row that we've had growth in in farmland values, but not at the same levels. I expect we might get back more towards our our long run return of somewhere around that, you know, 8 to 10% might be a, a prediction at this point.
1: Do the interest rates that we've seen from the RBA recently have the same impact on the farmland market as they do on something like the residential property market, or are there a few more factors at play?
5: I think there are some more factors, but fundamentally, as those rates have increased over time, we've been in discussion with our client base about buying farmland and the gross margins that people are achieving from their operation and then the servicing equation has gotten a lot tighter. So, there's no doubt that the higher rates are starting to crimp some of that confidence and what I guess we have seen is that while the resi market has its drivers, the, the farmland value market has its own and we've had a pretty good run really and I think with interest rates creeping up uh, to more normal levels, people are doing those calculations a lot more closely.
1: Rural Bank Head of Agribusiness Development, Andrew Smith. The head of the company, which buys most of WA's live sheep, says the number of livestock heading to the Middle East could dramatically increase as early as next year, with the Saudi Arabian market on the verge of reopening, just as the federal government is planning to end the trade. The Saudis objected to Australia's compulsory exporter supply chain assurance system when it was introduced in 2012, and the trade stopped. It was, historically, Australia's largest market for sheep, taking one million head a year at its peak. Osama Boudet is the CEO of Kuwait Livestock Transport and Trading Company, which owns the WA business, Rural Export and Trading WA, or RETWA. He visited Western Australia this week and says that the mere talk of a phase-out of the live sheep trade could undo all of the hard work that's been done to reopen the Saudi Arabian market.
2: The changes which are happening over there are letting them to accept the SCS uh, rule to implement it because there was no one who really cl- uh, clarify for them what is the meaning of the SKS uh, in the market. They thought that uh, the auditors are coming to audit Saudi government, which is not uh, correct. They are auditing the feedlots. They are auditing the, the slaughterhouses to be compliable with the, the SKS rule. Now, after we clarify all these things, now they have the doubt that if Australia is facing out, so why do we really go and uh, take quantities again from Australia? So the, the numbers can increase again. And we are also trying to, to start again, shipping two shipments uh, every month starting from uh, next year after we reopen Saudi Arabia.
10: How close do you think you are to that opportunity to get back into Saudi Arabia?
2: Well, we are very close, but uh, we have to apply uh, our supply chain to the Department of Agriculture uh, uh, with our audit reports on uh, the supply chain, which we are doing it in Saudi. Uh, And uh, it will be, uh, once we get the approvals from the government, I think we are going to uh, ship them immediately, maybe after the moratorium
10: and what sort of numbers would that mean because saudi arabia was once a, a huge market for australian sheep if that suddenly opened and was another market opportunity how many sheep do you think could go to that market per
2: year uh, well currently they are importing around 8 million heads so uh, uh, i think uh, easily we can uh, supply them with uh, 1 million annually uh, with all these rules because Once we enter Saudi market, we are going to be the supplier and the importer at the same time because we want it to be in a closed loop. We want to control the market. We don't want any mistakes to happen to the supply chain.
10: And after all the work that's been done, you're saying now Saudi Arabia is just sort of hesitating because of the news that Australia has this policy to eventually phase out the trade, the live sheep trade.
2: Yes, uh, actually, uh, it was even uh, uh, when the the department uh, representative came to the Gulf in the beginning of uh, uh, the year or the end of last year, they visited Kuwait and Saudi, which uh, they are not importing, So, uh, and they gave them the message that we are going to phase out the, the industry soon.
10: What sort of message does that send to that market?
2: They tell them that uh, the current government, because of uh, the election commitment, uh, they are going to uh, phase out uh, the livestock industry after uh, 2025. So they were coming to Kuwait, Oman, and uh, Saudi Arabia. And we said, yes, we know that Kuwait and Oman are already importing. So Saudi Arabia, what was the need for it? We don't know. It's like sending the message before they start uh, importing.
10: Osama Boudet, the CEO of Kuwait Livestock Transport and Trading. Now, KLTT headquarters is in Kuwait and it is a big business. It supplies 50% of the local consumption of live sheep in Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates. It owns the biggest shaded feedlot in the world with the capacity to carry up to 200,000 head at one time. And KLTT also runs a big slaughterhouse, which can kill up to 15,000 head a day. And then there's the 35 retail outlets based in Kuwait. Osama Boudet says the market prefers a live product over a chilled product, and he doesn't see that changing.
2: The region, they want uh, always uh, the fresh meat, which is slaughtered on the same day or uh, one day old. Even anywhere around the world, now here in Australia, if you go to any... Supermarket, you want to buy your meat or your milk or any uh, grocery items, you go and check the the expiry. If you find something which is two days old and you find one which is uh, a new production, you take the new production. So it's normal over there the same way. So once we are uh, importing the chilled uh, meat, it's already uh, five days gone from uh, the shelf life. Once it's arrived to the shelf, to the consumer, they don't prefer to buy something which is uh, take all this process slaughtered in Australia, transferred uh, by airplane to two countries till it reaches uh, reach us. And then uh, we keep it in our uh, stores. Then you send it to the shelf. They prefer to have it fresh. And this is clear happened to us in since 2018 when the, uh, the moratorium started. We start importing uh, more chilled during that time, but the consumption was dropped uh, dramatically in uh, in our sales because the people, they go for a higher, even if it's a, co- a more costly product, just to buy it fresh and slaughtered on the same day.
10: To what extent do you think generational change will see a change in that demand for the chilled product in the Middle East region? Do you see that happening?
2: Uh, well... Uh, let's say uh if we are talking we are uh, the mid generation in our country and i can see the younger generation which they are still buying the fresh even the young generation in australia they will buy the fresh they don't want to buy something which is uh, old there is people who will argue yes we want an aged meat it's a different category it's not uh, you don't buy lamb to uh, as aged lamb to cook it. Yes, you might take some steak, some uh, prime cuts of uh, the beef aged for this purpose, but it's not the same for the chilled lamb.
10: So you believe there's always going to be a demand for the live product in the region?
2: Yeah. Yeah. When, when we are talking about it, when we said about Saudi Arabia, when it stopped in 2012, everyone was thinking that the, the number of chilled will increase. It didn't decrease, it's decreased because the people, they know the product which is available in the market. They start increasing the quantity which they are importing from other countries, from Romania. They bought the the livestock from Romania and the chilt from Romania. They buy now from Spain, the livestock and the chilled, but they are not buying it from uh, Australia. uh, And the figures, you can check uh, the figures of MLA showing the chilled meat which is going to Australia, uh, to Saudi, uh, it's much less than it was before, when they used to uh, buy livestock, because the market, they know what they want.
1: Osama Bude, the CEO of Kuwait Livestock Transport and Trading Company, speaking with Belinda Varaschetti. The federal government has committed to ending the live sheep trade, but says it will not happen in this term of government. The recent budget committed $5.6 million over this year and next to fund the independent committee tasked with coming up with an exit strategy for the sector. More on that story and my wrap of the booming farmland property market is online right now. My thanks to Serena Locke, Kath Macklin and Kerry Dell for bringing Country Breakfast together this week. And happy World B-Day to you and the rest of the Saturday Morning Crew here on RN.